Welcome to the Eater Upsell, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Amanda Clute, Eater's Editor-in-Chief. I'm joined by my co-host, Dan Janine. Hi, Amanda Clute. How are you? I'm doing well, Dan. Uh, upsell listeners should know that we are here on the Blizzard. And we should, we should say that out of all Vox Media brands, Eater definitely has the highest percentage of its employees in today. That's true. Yeah, we're real troopers. Yeah. So you're welcome, everyone. We love each other the most. Yeah, that's, that's what it is. Every week on the Upsell, we look at a food issue, whether it's something we're covering on Eater or just something we're fascinated by. We speak to our own editors and outside journalists and important figures to figure out what's going on in the world of food. So that begs the question, what's going on this what's week? What's going on this week? Uh, well, as you know, Dan, mm-hmm. uh, we published a really important piece between Christmas and New Year's about the restaurant scene in Mosul, Iraq. It's by our one of our favorite contributors, Gary He. Uh, he's a photojournalist who works for us on the New York site. And so we thought we would have him on to talk about the piece, but also just like, what is it like going to Iraq and recently? I think what was remarkable about this story is Gary just kind of went, and we'll find out more from him, but I was surprised there wasn't a visa process or some sort of official way of going. He just kind of went to Iraq and wanted to see what the restaurant scene was like. So uh, here's Gary He. First up, tell us just what you what do you do? So I'm a photographer, and you might see me on a website called Eater New York. Mm-hmm. I started my career in uh, newspapers and like wire services, but then a couple of years ago, I decided to sell out. <laughs> and start doing corporate and commercial work because, you know, obviously it pays a lot more money, but my heart is still really in editorial. So every couple of months I'll just dive back in and start working on projects that I find uh, are worthwhile in editorial. And how did this story first come about? Like when when did you decide you want to do this? What was the pitch? Oh, the Mosul story. Yeah. In terms of like food journalism, there's like kind of two things that I like thinking about. One is um, the complaint that journalists leave the scene of like major stories, like say a war or a hurricane, like shortly after the bullets stop flying or you know the the hurricane passes or whatever, and um, you never really get the story of the rebuild or people mm-hmm. living right. That kind of misses out on the spotlight, even though there are stories like that. They are far fewer in between than the actual like war and action stuff. And then the second is that in food media, I feel like we do a really good job of um, covering the high end, right? We spend so much, uh, so many resources on the grill, on like vespertine, mm-hmm. right? But 99% of the world's population will never really ever be able to eat at those places. Right. And so I feel like the story of that 99% is so rarely told and, I mean, needs to be told more often. And so when the summer was approaching, there were a number of stories and places around the world where both those things were kind of in play. And obviously, I was in touch with uh, Matt Buchanan, your features editor Mm -hmm. at the time, and doing background research on a number of these stories. I noticed that there was a a restaurant in Mosul that had been uh, reopened shortly after it was liberated from ISIS. But then a suicide bomber just blew it up. I was reading about this in like May or June, and the last story about it was in like February. It's like, what happened to this restaurant? Did it ever rebuild or whatever? Right. And that's when I realized there was the potential for some storytelling in Mosul involving the restaurant industry. That restaurant, which is My Fair Lady, became the basis and uh, the, I guess the lead also for the Mosul story. How did you get to Mosul? So it used to be very easy to get into Mosul. As an American, you don't actually need to 
flying to Baghdad or anything like that. You fly into Iraqi Kurdistan, which is like an autonomous uh, governmental region. Stupid question, Iraq. but who flies there? Just Is it like you could get a Delta flight? Uh, you, anyone, where, where, anyone can fly there, but primarily I think it's like oil and government contractors uh-huh. because that's where they're routing a lot of like the pipelines through. That's where a lot of like the dark arts yeah. happen <laughs> in, uh, in Iraq. Anyway, I just flew into Erbil International Airport, mm-hmm. uh, which is like the capital of uh, Iraqi Kurdistan. And they'll just, with an American passport, they'll just let you in 30 days. And from there, you just kind of negotiate with the Peshmerga, which is the uh, Kurdistan army, about driving toward Mosul, which is just past the Iraqi and Iraqi Kurdistan border, and entering. And it's, it's very easy. I would say. Can you uh, set us up and tell us when you were there? Because we ran this in December, but you were there much earlier. And also the state of of Mosul and the battles. I had told Matt that I was kind of in position to go in at any time in August. And I was basing myself out of Istanbul and sort of just keeping an eye on everything. And by like the middle of July, uh, the president of Iraq had declared the end of combat but, you know, you would st- still see all these stories about how, oh, yeah, this uh, ISIS sniper killed two people crossing the bridge or whatever. And, you know, I-, I thought to myself, you know, this is a very interesting story, but I think I can wait for it to cool down just a little bit more before I go in. And so I was actually there the second week of August. Mm-hmm. So I think it was about two or three weeks after the end of uh, major combat. But, you know, there were still... Uh, areas of like the old city that you can go into um, because they were still fighting out like the last bit of the battle, like okay. building the building. When Matt Green lit the story, what was your what was your first move? Did you plan out your trip, or did you start contacting people on the ground there? Or before I even contacted Matt about the story, I was already talking to fixers on the ground, and obviously at the time there were thousands of journalists in Mosul yeah. covering the offensive. And fi- fixers for people who don't know are people who are, live in a place and you can pay them to facilitate your journalism or your videos or whatever you want to do when you get there. If you have a problem, they fix it. <laughs> um, no, seriously. I yeah. mean, if you have a problem at a checkpoint or you need to get out of a situation, <laughs> this guy, my guy in uh, Mosul, Sangar Khalil, he came extremely highly recommended and he was obviously also very expensive but worth every penny because that's not a place where you want to be. Uh, you, you want know. to have unsolved problems. You don't want the yeah. second-rate fixer. <laughs> no. You want exactly. premium fixer. Exactly. I mean, it, at, at that point, cost is not an issue. You just want to be able to get in and get out and tell your story properly without you know, leaving a mark. So you contacted the fixer ahead of time. Yes. Erbil is the capital of Iraqi Kurdistan, and so it is extremely safe. He lives there right now, but he is originally from Mosul. And so he met me a couple of days after I had already kind of acclimated to hmm. the fact that it was 120 degrees oh my outside every single day. And then we made our plan uh, to go in. And he kind of already knew that we were going to focus on My Fair Lady, which is the restaurant that got um, uh, blown up by the suicide bomber in February. Talking to a lot of those guys, I mean, uh, especially Sangar, he mentioned a number of other interesting restaurants mm-hmm. um, that might be worth visiting. But I kind of felt like... He was mentioning things that other journalists had already asked him about, even though there weren't really any Mosul food stories out there. And so I kind of told him, hey, let's just 
hit the ground, we'll go to My Fair Lady first, and then we'll just start driving around and start taking a look at uh, restaurants that may be of interest, or maybe we'll run into food vendors and stuff like that, that uh, will work. Because I, I feel like it's a mistake to go into any one of these situations with too much of a preconception, right? Because then you're just trying to shape the story to what you already have in your head as opposed to telling a story of what you see on the ground. Let's talk about uh, day one in Mosul. You meet your fixer, and he takes you to My Fair Lady. How, how does that work? Uh, so I, I actually meet him at Classy Hotel in Erbil, and then we drive in to Mosul, which takes three hours. And they actually Is he re- like Indiana Jones? Like, wh- what is he like, the fixer guy? I think, I believe he's the son of someone within the Iraqi government. And so for s- somehow he can just make phone calls and then things just happen. Like these checkpoint what? guys then subsequently get a phone call from another guy who tell them, oh, yeah, let these people pass. And wow. so we just, we just got through everything. I mean, that's why, I mean, we call him a fixer, right? It's, we have a problem and he fixes it. And so we got in and we... And obviously, My Fair Lady was kind of the focal point, and we knew there was a story there because the rebuild post-suicide bomber. Um, and so we just went in, and they kind of knew Sangar already because he had brought another journalist to that restaurant a couple months ago. And he's kind of like a local local celebrity anyway. <laughs> and so they just sort of sat us down and put all this food in front of us and said, here, you must be hungry from coming from Erbil. And so eat. And so they, they, they put in, uh, they put down kebab, rice, salads, like pretty much the fixings. And then after we ate, we chatted for about half an hour and uh, moved on because uh, part of the strategy in staying safe in a city like Mosul is that you don't stay in any one place for more than like an hour, right? <laughs> 45 minutes, an hour. Because even though it's not like a James Bond situation where they're quote-unquote bad guys are following you with, like, satellite tracking <laughs> and stuff like that, conceivably a sleeper agent could spot you sitting in a cafe for three hours, call up his buddies, and then all of a sudden all they your routes are cut off. kidnap you. Yeah, that's, it is a thing that can happen, even though I believe it didn't happen that much during the Mosul offensive. Yeah, speaking of security, you obviously don't look like a lot of other people in Mosul. Uh, were you worried about what sticking, are you talking about? Were you worried about sticking out? <laughs> um, like, were you afraid during this reporting trip? I think I think when you go into situations like this, there's always a little bit of fear in the beginning, but then once you're in the environment and you assess the baseline, a lot of those fears go away, right? And I, also, I was like well prepared. A, a lot of people, a lot of colleagues of mine, are veterans of war zones. They kind of prepped me on everything I needed to know. Uh, my next-door neighbor and best friend, he is the Iraqi negotiator for the U.S. State Department. And wow. so he had, me kit- yeah. <laughs> he had me kitted out. Um, what, is, what, that, does what does that, that mean? There's a medical kit that you should carry around with you when you're in these kind of areas that involve like tourniquets, chest compression kits, and stuff like that. And so he had me, he had me set up with all the all the little gadgets that, you know, you hope you never have to use. And obviously we had uh, body armor and, um, and a helmet and um, all that on stuff. On you at all times? I was not wearing it at all times, but we were ready to put it on when, you know, we left the car in certain situations. Oh, wow. At, at the time that I was in Mosul, uh, active combat was already over. And so right. it's not like there were bullets or anything like that flying around. So it might have been more awkward to leave the car 
and wander into a restaurant wearing body armor and yeah. a helmet when no one else on the street is doing right. that. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't have been good for blending in. No, not at all, even if we sort of passed after 45 minutes. But I, I, think, I think the biggest precaution that we took was that we just kept on moving, right? No lingering around. And Sangar obviously worked with a ton of journalists before me in a lot more dangerous situations. Mm-hmm. Like he worked with uh, Luke Mogelson, kind of embedding with the unit that made the incursion into Mosul mm-hmm. as they were liberating it. Um, he worked with uh, Seng- uh, Cengiz Yar, who uh, worked for like the Wall Street Journal, The Guardian, like doing frontline stuff. And so for him, this was like, kind of a cakewalk. He just sort of kept his eyes open and said, all right, time to go. I, th- I think we've been here long enough. And you just kind of heed his advice and get what you can as quickly as possible. And then if you need more, you'll return at a later date. So how did the story of My Fair Lady come together once you got there? With My Fair Lady, the owner's brother now runs the restaurant, but obviously they want to be interviewed because, you know, his brother had already been killed in a, a suicide bombing attack. And so a lot of the managers started talking to me after I'd eaten, and they started revealing certain things about how women had difficulty eating at the restaurant during ISIS control because they had to wear kind of that uh, full-body niqab. And so even if they lifted it a little bit to eat food in the family room, the uh, religious police would swing by and say, hey, what are you doing? Go out, give them 10 lashes for the first incident, and then... Subsequently, you would just get killed or decapitated. And I don't believe this made it into the story, but the traffic circle right outside of My Fair Lady, the restaurant, is where ISIS did a lot of these decapitations. And so I was talking to a lot of those guys, and they were telling me, yeah, man, for the past like year and a half, two years, we've just been working here and watching people get decapitated Jesus. You know, across the street. Um, yeah, so it was, a, it, it was a, a gnarly way to start uh, you know, reporting on a story. But I kind of knew going in that, you know, I was going to hear some crazy stuff. So how did it evolve from there? Once you'd gotten a sense of that restaurant, what was your next move? After, after My Fair Lady, like, you know, I, I, thought, I thought My Fair Lady was a good starting point, but then I kind of wanted to see some less famous uh, restaurants that hadn't been in the news. So we just kind of just drove around and until we could find certain things that... Um, looked interesting. And that's where we stopped in uh, that restaurant that had the blown out second floor, which served only tashrib, like a breakfast dish in the morning. But I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, I wonder how the, how much the rent is because the second floor doesn't exist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it used to be a second floor, but now it's uh, an outdoor patio because there were snipers up there and then uh, an airstrike hit it. And so I went in and talked to the guys, and apparently they uh, had had a restaurant on the west side that they had to evacuate and, you know, relocate. And now all the customers were, you know, visiting their um, east side restaurant. And so that became kind of a microcosm for kind of how the rebuilding was happening. It's like a lot of people relocating from a very, very destroyed west side to a mostly unharmed east side and sort of just rebuilding as they could. Can you talk more a little bit about the east side versus west side dichotomy in Mosul right now? So in Mosul, the east side is actually pretty unscathed from the battle. A lot of the highways are obviously um, destroyed from airstrikes because they wanted to cut off all the major escape routes, and the bridges to the west side are all still destroyed. But for the most part, I think 
you know, if you go into East Mosul, it'll appear as any other major Middle Eastern city will appear. Whereas the West Side is all rubble. Like I would say 90% of the buildings have severe damage. And because of problems with the Iraqi government and, you know, money issues, stuff hasn't really been getting rebuilt as quickly as they would have liked on the West Side. And, you know, if you follow people like Mosul I, uh, who is like a major Twitter account, um, you know, a lot of them will just tell you, hey, let's keep bringing attention to the West Side because nothing is happening here. You know, Mm -hmm. there are obviously some... There's some rebuilding happening, but for the most part, all of it is still rubble. When you when you see a restaurant like this one with the top floor uh, blown off, does the fixer go in ahead of you, or can you guys just walk in together? Oh, no. I mean, that restaurant was so nice. It was, like, com- newly renovated. Like, they had just installed that restaurant on the bottom floor. Um, so we kind of we just strolled in together and said hello to everyone, and everyone there was like unbelievably nice. I don't think I paid for a single meal when I was in Mosul. Like I would try to pay because I I try not to eat anything for free when I'm doing editorial stuff in food. And they they just straight up refuse. And I'm just like, man, I see your house over there. It's a pile of rubble. Like why are you trying to feed me for free? And they said, you know what, Iraqi hospitality. That's what they always said um, the entire time. And so, you know, I, I, I think... I think going in, there was a little bit of, like, caution on my end. But then, you know, it quickly transformed into, oh, everyone's cool, you know. Um, You know, I think we can just walk in and start talking to these people. Obviously, I wasn't speaking Arabic, and so my fixer was doing the majority of that. But I think people understood what I was there for and wanted me to try a lot of different things. and And they wanted to tell their story and get that across, like, their struggle. For the past two years. As you went into more and more restaurants, what story did you decide that you were kind of trying to tell on the whole? I think as I talked to more and more people in Mosul, there was a story about how um, there's a struggle between Shiite and Shia factions um, that always existed there that sort of allowed ISIS to sort of take hold of the city uh, a lot more easily than they should have been able to, and how if um, some of these problems don't correct themselves, like the city could again become a hotbed for uh, those kind of issues. But I think once we got into the editing process, um, we realized, well, you know, that's a little bit more complicated than, you know, what's happening with the restaurant scene. Um, and so we kind of, uh, we kind of glossed over that part to make it more about how the resilience of a people that really had their lives and their city torn apart and how it's it's kind of the norm for them. I mean, they, they didn't, a lot of people weren't even batting an eyelash when they were talking about the rebuild or when they were talking about certain things they experienced or getting pelted with um, shrapnel from a suicide bomber. Like a lot of that was just kind of like day in the life, like, oh, yeah, that happened, but now we're here, and now do you want to have some food or not? <laughs> like, that kind of thing. And On the house. Yeah. yeah, on the house. It was great. You know, it was, it's very, it was very heartening to hear a lot of their stories, and so I think that's what the piece eventually became about. Yeah, and there's definitely a commonality 
between this and what you see after hurricanes and other tragedies where the food community does seem to get together relatively quickly because they need to feed people and they thrive off of the hospitality. Right. And whether it's like 100% authentic or not, I kind of feel like in a lot of these situations, when they see journalists show up, they, everyone wants to kind of say, huh, you know what, we got this. Like, don't worry about all the, all the bad stuff that you see, you know, and just enjoy mm-hmm. a plate of food on us and, you know, everything's going to be all right. We'll be right back with Gary in one second, but first, a word from our sponsor today, Freshly. We all live busy lives, and unfortunately, there are not enough hours in the day to get everything done. Freshly is the easiest and most convenient way to eat healthy, no matter what life throws your way. Freshly's team of chefs create all-natural, gluten-free dinners and deliver them fresh to your door. So even if you get stuck at work late, you can come home to a delicious dinner cooked by a chef. Amanda, you know a thing or two about chefs, don't you? I do. I really do. So their menu is created by chefs for people who want to eat healthy but are living busy lives and don't always have the time to shop, cook, or clean. The best part about Freshly is the number of comfort meals they currently have that are also super healthy, like the buffalo chicken or chicken parm. Customize your weekly meals from their constantly changing rotating menu of more than 30 chef-crafted options. There's no weekly commitment, so you only get deliveries when you want them. Check out this week's menu and get $25 off your first order of six chef-cooked dinners, plus free shipping by going to Freshly.com slash upsell. You'll feel so relieved to come home to a chef-cooked meal every night with Freshly. That's Freshly.com slash upsell for $25 off your first order. Order today to see what life is like when you no longer have to think about dinner. Where were you staying during all of this? When I was in Mosul, I stayed with the uh, Mosul Civil Defense Force, which is kind of like a sub-police force uh, that is tasked with um, searching through the rubble for bodies and then identifying them and then, you know, bringing them to the morgue and then telling the families. And so uh, they were very good friends with uh, my fixer, Sanger. And so they allowed me to sort of stay in their main sleeping quarters, which was just a series of cots. I actually had dinner with them one night, and uh, you know, because they don't eat during the day, uh, because you know, uh, rotting bodies and you know, keeping food down don't really mix. Mm. And it was, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't understand a word these guys were saying, but there was sort of a an energy. There was like a, a of a of a shared experience um, that we all kind of felt together. And then eventually, one of the guys asked me what his uh, hat meant, because he had a hat that had an interlocking N and a Y logo. And I had to explain to him, oh, yeah, that's, that's my hometown, the New York, that's the New York Yankees logo. And he was like, what, really, New York? Like, he, he was like, kind of so excited about that. And that was like kind of a, a, a wonderful moment in, in the middle of like what was like a very dark period of reporting, because like you just keep hearing all these like negative stories uh, over and over again. Um, so that, that was quite nice. They, uh, um, I'm very grateful that they allowed me to stay with them when I was in Mosul. Was there any big surprise for you? I think the biggest surprise in Mosul was when we were driving around toward the end and we already had all the My Fair Lady stuff locked away. We had already met the nine-year-old kid, Zachariah, and his father on the outskirts of the old city. Um, and then Sangar just kind of just mentioned, hey... 
do you want to do anything with the liquor store? Mm. I said, what? A liquor store? It's like, there, you have one of those around here? I thought this was strictly a uh, Muslim area and, you know, there isn't too much drinking. And he said, yeah, man, they, they opened up a liquor store after uh, they liberated uh, the east side from ISIS. And I said, yeah, let's, let's go and visit it. And so we went in and the guy didn't want to talk because he had already done uh, one interview in May, I believe, and he started getting death threats. Uh, but then he said, no, come back here. And then he kind of sat us down and gave us some Heineken tall boys and started cracking, <laughs> cracking one himself and drank with us. And he's like, oh, what do you want to know? Like, don't, don't use my name or anything like that, but I'll tell you about how, how much stuff used to be when ISIS was around and how cheap stuff is now and all sorts of like little details, which I don't think made the story. Maybe some of it made the story. I think some of it did. Yeah. About I, I love that part about the prices of it. Yeah. I was listening to a restaurant owner speak who was um, in Afghanistan, and he was saying the same thing. Like the price of the Heineken was like your currency calculator. Even though it's outlawed under their strict rule, there's still like a yeah. very robust black market for acquiring these products. And, you know, people aren't going to stop smoking and drinking. Um, so I, th- I thought that was very interesting. So I thought that was the most surprising. I was kind of sad that he wouldn't let me take photographs or let him uh, let me put him on the record. But, you know, he was still a valuable asset and a great person to talk to. Was there anything that you were truly shocked about that you just found like, wow, this is I was not expecting this? Uh, there was nothing really shocking to me because I've done a, a fair amount of traveling. Um, but there are a lot of misconceptions about that part of the world um, even among people who are like pretty well read, um, and I'm obviously throwing a lot of my own friends under the bus here. Name uh, names, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I, I think I think the I think the way that that region is reported on uh, leads you to believe that like literally every single person there is uh, like an ISIS sleeper agent, and like everyone there is like extremely hardened by war. And that cannot be further from the truth. I mean, there's like over a million people there just trying to get on with their lives. You know, even though there are precautions you should take for your safety, I I felt there was a more of a sense of like friendship and camaraderie when I was like going around than I did feel any fear. Right. And so I think so that is like one of the things I was trying to get across uh, with the piece. Also, it's like, how do we talk about this region and the people and the way of life in a way that's like hyper normal right right like mm. hey man like everyone's still going to restaurants and eating like this is this is a scene there they're not only eating you know gruel and like suffering right you right, know right, under right. war all the time like there is a very robust like restaurant scene going on there and like, they just want to get back to the normal way of life the same way that we have here right was there any dishes that you had there that you loved that we we absolutely can't get here uh, I think you can get everything in New York but there was this one dish uh, called tashrib, which is um, kind of the uh, Iraqi flatbread in a bowl uh, with a layer of like beef stew with like roasted tomatoes and onions, and then slices of shawarma layered on top of that. And I know that sounds delicious, but these guys are having it for breakfast, <laughs> right? And so it is just like the richest, most delicious thing that you can have after like you know a night of sleeping, um, and. I, I think it was, like, the best thing that I had all summer of traveling. And I had been in, like, Copenhagen eating at, like, Michelin star restaurants, <laughs> you know, and I thought I thought that was very, very delicious. How did the finances for a trip like this come together? Does, will, Eater, will Eater front the whole bill? 
Amanda. <laughs> I mean, it, <laughs> well, depends, you it depends on the story. <laughs> yeah. It depends. It really depends on the story. I don't know what Matt's agreement with you was on this one. Um, so for for a lot of these like bigger editorial projects that I work on, I more or less break even um, when I'm working on these stories. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, uh, I do a lot of commercial photography, and so I, a lot of that ends up financing <laughs> these editorial stories because a good way for me to spend the money I make doing uh, corporate and commercial photography is to uh, funnel it back into editorial storytelling. Well, Gary, thank you so much for joining us today. That was, I don't know if fun is the right word, but it was definitely <laughs> it was, a bucket of fun as always. Yeah, sorry for making it so dark, guys. <laughs> thank you so much for listening to The Eater Upsell. Again, that was Gary He. You can find him on Instagram and Twitter at Gary He, G-A-R-Y-H-E, or on Eater New York or Eater.com. If you liked what you heard today, it'd be fantastic if you subscribed on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use, or even tossed us a rating and a review. Theater Upsell is hosted by Amanda Clute, our editor-in-chief, and me, Daniel Janine. We have support from our studio team, Miles Yule, Carrie Clements, Alex Allreich, Paige Bethman, and Pedro Alvira. Our executive producer is Maureen Giannone Fitzgerald, and that's all. <laughs>